And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, August 31st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, crime and terror victims get compensation. Thanks to this career federal leader. Plus, one small agency marks a big success in modernizing a very old process. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, along with staff attrition and lost productivity, there is now another consequence from the Department of Agriculture's relocation of two research facilities back in 2019. The Government Accountability Office has found that USDA violated a provision of the Anti-Deficiency Act. And after GAO's new findings, lawmakers are calling for the passage of a bill to create more oversight in future agency relocations. We get more now from Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. The Anti-Deficiency Act says that you can't spend money that has not been appropriated and released from Treasury. So what did they do wrong here specifically? So that is the key. But for this specific provision, the one that the USDA violated, it's about the timing of the appropriations. One provision of the Anti-Deficiency Act requires that agencies notify both the House and Senate appropriations committees before they transfer appropriated funds from one area of the agency to another. and Reprogramming, in other words. Exactly. Right. So you have to get permission from Congress to reprogram funds, but this all involved the timing and the letters and back and forth. And tell us the timelines here. Exactly. So this did have to do with the timing for... NIFA, one of the two agencies that was relocated in 2019, GAO found they did meet those congressional obligations under the Anti-Deficiency Act with this 2018 letter that they sent to the two committees. But for the ERS, the other agency that had the relocation, they did not meet those same requirements. And it comes down to the funding coming from the 2019 continuing resolution. So initially, this funding for NIFA was was made through previous appropriations that USDA already had. But then for ERS later on, they used some funds from the continuing resolution, but didn't give an update to the two committees, which then resulted in the violation of the Interdeficiency Act here. Yeah, so that's really technical. It's not like, you SOBs, you're spending money all over the place. You shouldn't have reprogrammed. It sounds pretty technical here. How did this get to GAO in the first place? Yes, yeah, so it is very in the weeds here. And this came from a couple of Democrat lawmakers in the House, led by Jennifer Wexton from Virginia and It was part of a push, I think, from these lawmakers as well to kind of bring some more attention to the Cost of Relocations Act. This is a new bill that they're trying to get taken up in a committee probably sometime this fall. It's not scheduled for the calendar yet, but it's something that, you know, this GAO decision definitely ties back to that to that push there. And GAO's precise decision then was what exactly? That USDA violated the Anti-Deficiency Act when it was for specifically the congressional notification requirements from that act. For relocating the ERS. Exactly. For ERS, but not for NIFA. So it's a little bit technical how it all played out. But again, it has to do with the timeline of when they notified the, the two committees. So the GAO is not indicting 
former Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue or anything. I mean, <laughs> maybe that's next, but right now that's what it stands. I mean, it's kind of moot at this point, right? Both have been re-relocated back to Washington, correct? That is correct, but there have been some other consequences, as you mentioned at the top, from those relocations. And in rebuilding the staff, they had a lot of staff attrition back in 2019 when they first relocated. That caused a lot of challenges with the agencies, both with you know, just losing employees. Generally, they weren't able to be as productive, of course, and then having to staff back up. So there were a lot of challenges in that. And then we're seeing you know, residual challenges as well. Another GAO report earlier this year found that when they rebuilt the staff, which was largely recovered by 2021, by September 2021, the resulting workforce, the new workforce, is a lot less experienced and also a lot less diverse. So, for example, the number of black employees at the agency has dropped off very significantly. Right. So, well, there's nothing you can do about that at this point except, you know, over time, trip people. Has anyone asked whether they got those letters for reprogramming for the re-relocation yet? Not yet. We haven't seen that, but this, I think, is still a significant decision to come from GAO here, and they are calling on USDA to, to kind of you know, acknowledge that they did or report that they did violate the Anti-Deficiency Act. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you can actually go to prison. You can be prosecuted for doing that. I don't know how often those kinds of things happen, but it's a pretty serious. The Anti-Deficiency Act goes back, I think, to the 19th century. When, it does. Know, yeah. All right. And now you've mentioned, too, that there's a new bill aimed at this for more oversight. Tell us more about that legislation and what it would do. This legislation was introduced earlier this year. It's called the Conducting Oversight to Secure Transparency of Relocations Act, or if you want to put an acronym on it, the Cost of Relocations Act. The bill would essentially require any agency in the future who's looking to relocate that they conduct and publish a comprehensive cost-benefit analysis of the proposed move before carrying it out. So the lawmakers here, there are six of them who co-sponsored the House bill, and then Senator Chris Van Hollen has the companion legislation in the Senate. And basically they're trying to emphasize that you know this USDA relocation, in their opinion, didn't go so well. And now they're trying to prevent similar situations from occurring in the future. And is there bipartisan support for these bills? I mean, you could say that, well, maybe a Democratic administration would want to arbitrarily relocate an agency and, you know, and the Republicans wouldn't like that and vice versa. Or is it this all the Democrats because it happened during the Trump administration? It seems to be more the latter. There are so far only Democrat co-sponsors of the legislation. Um but, you know, again, it's, it's only got a couple of co-sponsors right now, and they're looking to try to get it taken up in, uh, in a committee. But so far, there hasn't been a whole lot of movement beyond just the introduction of it earlier this year. Yeah, the whole thing is kind of sad because you could say there was a rationale for moving those agency headquarters out to the hinterland, so to speak, Kansas City, I think in Grand Junction, Colorado, to be close to where the action is and close to where the affected entities are by what they do. But the case was not made very carefully. It was just, let's go, get up and go. And of course, with consequences to the workforce, as you pointed out. So, Exactly. There there was 
maybe in theory the idea some people can get behind that and support that but at least in terms of the way the one went for USDA there were a lot of negative consequences here and a lot of it was just in the planning and execution of the relocation they didn't consider you know how many employees would actually leave the agency when it was relocated and of course a lot of people did leave and it's kind of funny when you think about it because the agriculture department through other parts of USDA not ERS and NIFA, but they've got about seven or 8,000 offices somewhere in between there throughout the country for Farm Service Administration work. It's almost like Social Security. Every county almost, you know, every few counties, there is a USDA office. It seems like they could have found a desk somewhere for someone that has to do with something out west at a desk out west without moving the whole thing lock, stock, and barrel. Just right. my view. Right. You know, it is it, uh, it is a huge agency. I think the, these two facilities represent pretty much a pretty small portion of USDA overall, but you know, this is something that has gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of years. Yeah, partner, you're in USDA. Let me see the dirt and the trail of those boots. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, one small agency marks big success in modernizing a very old process. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Copyright Office, a congressional agency, is taking a bow for success of its online recordation system. The system lets people submitting documents for copyright applications do so online. How successful? Let's get the numbers from the Assistant Register and Director of the Office of Copyright Records, Denise Wolford. Ms. Wolford, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. It's great to be here. And let's begin with what it is that the recordation system records. That is, what sorts of documents do people need to get into the Copyright Office aside from the work that they're trying to copyright itself? Or is that also part of it? Yeah, Tom, that's really a great question because a lot of people get the copyright registration confused with recordation. But recordation is really about transferring your copyright over to someone else. And so we have a lot of artists, creators and authors, lawyers who are working with individuals who transfer copyrights over to other individuals. So, for example, let's say, Tom, you write a novel and then someone comes to you and they say that they want to make that novel into a movie. And so you may transfer part of your copyrights over to that movie producer so that they could make that movie for you. We do do a lot of copyright recordations in the office, and it's all part of making the public record a complete record in terms of the copyright ownership. Understood. So before this system was piloted, how did this happen? It was all paper by mail, basically? Yes, Tom. It was all paper by mail. It was very time-consuming. It was a long process. People basically mailed in their paper documents along with their title of works, and we would actually literally record that information manually into our indexing system. So it took a lot of time to do that process. As you can imagine, our recordation specialists would have to contact people to ensure that they were entering the information correctly. A lot of times the fees might not be correct. And so the process was very long. And so now with this new modern system, everything is done online. It is streamlined and it's much, much better. And we're getting really good results out of the new system now. Things are being processed in weeks versus months under the paper process. 
And looking at the site itself, there is a lot of types of paperwork. There's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven different types of documents. And give us a sense of the volume, uh, how many applications come in for this recordation every year, how many transactions, and how many are now being done electronically versus a year ago before the pilot. Yeah, a year ago, we roughly processed five to 6,000 documents annually. Now we're seeing the volume increase significantly. I mean, the system was first piloted in April of 2020. Since that time, we've recorded over 19,000 documents, but just under a million titles of work. So it's significant improvement in terms of the use of the system. We're very pleased because people have really engaged with the system, and now we're starting to see more documents being recorded because of that. And it looks like you still need to add more documents that are not yet supported by the system. Again, according to the website, notices of termination, declarations of ownership in musical works, and so on. What is the issue there, and do you plan to add those? Yes, Tom. So we've developed the basic documents, the 205 documents, that work has been completed. And under our continuous development process, we are planning on adding the additional documents that aren't currently available in the online system. So that would be the notices of terminations and the other documents that currently are not recorded. And I noticed that documents not compatible are those, for example, with more than 10,000 works including alternative identifiers and so on. Who's got 10,000 things that they would transfer in the first place? Is this like Taylor Swift or Bob Dylan or something assigning their works? So actually that does happen quite a bit. We have law firms and organizations that have quite a bit of number of works. It could be photographs, it could be music. And so we do get often a lot of titles of works that we have to actually record. It could be hundreds of titles of works. So it does happen. And what form can these different types of documents be in? Because they could be, I guess, Word documents, PDFs, JPEGs, whatever the case might be. Can the system as it is accept all of these different formats? Yes, it can, Tom. So most of the documents that come into us are either in Word format or PDF format. Those documents are uploaded as part of the system. But the way the online system works is you actually input all of the key information directly into the system, the document is uploaded as part of that whole package that's submitted to our office. All right. And when people have documents that are not yet supported by the system, along with documents that are supported, then you've got kind of a hybrid. There still might be paper associated with a, let's call it a case, for lack of a better word. How do you correlate what might be in a file cabinet with what you were able to get online? Well, for the ones that are not supported through the system, we still have the mail-in process that's still available to the public to use. And we are looking and working right now to expand the system to allow all of the different types of documents, like the notices of termination, to be included in the system as well. But you can correlate those with what you have online, with what you might have physically. There's some way of identifying this goes with that if one thing is in the system and something else is in a file cabinet. So when you submit to the office, your options are either submit online through the online system or submit in paper, not both ways. So everything that you would submit to us online would be done through the online system, and it will accept whatever documents you submit to us through the online system. And Tom, we should note that those documents have to be PDFs uploaded into the system. And how did you develop this? Was it in-house staff? Did you use a contractor? And how's that all going? Well, actually, that's a very good question. 
We actually have in-house staff as well as contractors that are supporting this effort under the enterprise copyright system modernization effort that's underway. And so that process has been going very, very smoothly. We are currently using the scale agile model to actually do the development, which is allowing us to roll out the software in phases. Interesting. And earlier I asked about the copies of the works that are being copyrighted. That, as you said, a different process here than the reassignment of the copyright. But on that initial front end, how are things going electronically? Is that also being electronified, so to speak, for, for people that make the initial copyright application? So, yes, Tom, we actually have an existing system in place that was an online system for the copyright registration component. We are currently in the process of actually modernizing that part of the system as well. And so that is currently under development. And we're looking forward to being able to launch a pilot soon on that. And you mentioned 205 documents. That's a legal reference to the enabling legislation for all of this? That is exactly correct. As you know, Tom, the U.S. Copyright Office is based off of Title 17, the U.S. Copyright Act. And so Title 17 defines the actual procedures and regulations and rules that govern what we do within the U.S. Copyright Office. And so the 205 documents fall under Title 17. And this is often confusing to the public, but the other types of ownership modes, patents and trademarks, of course, those exist in the executive branch under the Commerce Department. And do you ever talk to those people or do they talk to you? Because even though one is congressional, one's executive, they have a theme. You know, this is my work and I want it to be protected in some manner. Again, patents and trademarks over there, copyrights over here. But do you all ever trade ideas and trade methodologies ever? Yes, as you know, patent and trademarks are slightly different than copyright. We work very closely with the Patent and Trademark Office because it's all about intellectual property. And so we work very closely with them. In terms of the copyright law, we are focused on things that are related to creative works. They could be paintings, phonographs, sculptures, jewelry, illustrations, musical compositions. I mean, various types of things, textile designs, and a lot of other things are copyrighted all considered intellectual property. And getting back to the recordation system, it's still called a pilot. At what point will it be declared a system of record and it's there forever or till the next update? Well, the system is still called a pilot and it's called a pilot because of the legal rules around it, but the system is actually live. And so the information that's being processed through the system is actually official information that is being updated into the copyright public record system. Denise Wolford is Assistant Register and Director of the Office of Copyright Records at the U.S. Copyright Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that recordation system at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, crime and terror victims get compensation thanks to this federal career leader. But first, the Army develops a game to help its contracting workforce get better at buying. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Army contracting is no game, but the Army Contracting Enterprise has developed a tool called the Interactive Procurement Contracting Game. 
for what the game does and how it helps. At a recent conference, I caught up with the future workforce capabilities lead for the Army contracting enterprise, Dustin Pitch. So it's a game to work at better training our workforce to actually do their job better. So we have a lot of existing training in the Department of Defense and in Army that gets folks up on the knowledge gets them awareness, tells them about the policies and the regulations. So we give them the rules, we tell them what the playing field looks like, but we don't necessarily show them how to do their job. So this is about actually practicing, simulating your actual work when you leave the training class and you go and actually apply. So it's allowing them to practice that application of your job, which is something above and beyond what we have out there today. Interesting. So this is for contracting officers, Contracting specialists, COs. Absolutely. So anyone involved in or around the contracting right. process would be informative to help them understand what, even from the requirements development side, understanding what is the KO looking at? They're reviewing that package and we want to train them to do the critical thinking involved in what things do I need to look at and check, cross-reference, make sure everything's consistent in your package. But it also has potential for a recruiting side. So someone that, say, is at a recruiting fair, we can have that game out there, say, what's contracting? Well, here, why don't you come look at this game? So we have a couple different ways that we can utilize it. And why does the Army call COs KOs? I believe it's generally KO because commanding officer was CO. And so it's so not with CO, you're a KO. Or something yeah, that type of yeah. thing probably happened apocryphally a long time ago. Got exactly. it. Well, is this game intended only for newcomers or is it something someone mid-career could rush up with? So some folks could, I think the mid-career folks, when we have them play, we generally want to get their input, you know, because they have that experience. They say, well, you're doing this wrong. We aren't actually doing it like that anymore to get their feedback on it, how to develop it better. But current state, what we have developed, kind of it's a, it's a proof of concept is uh, very beginner based, but we have some more development ongoing now that will build it out to some more complex scenarios that would be more appropriate for that person that's got the, the five years experience or a few years under their belt, but they need to either brush up or they're getting into a new type of buying. So maybe from like platforms and hardware to services or to software. Exactly. Or even, you know, moving from those things that were buying construction. You have a scenario where you're getting, because there's some different intricacies and, and details yeah, involved. Often overlooked, I guess, by the general public is how different each of those domains really is in terms of how you specify and how you set up contracts and acquisition. Yeah, absolutely. The way you go about putting the contract together, the clauses, the provisions for the solicitation is very similar. And we have plenty of training on that. But the actual, what are you doing from day one, getting the solicitation out and reviewing once you have the uh, offers in can be very different. Yeah, that's the big challenge is that you have to be compliant and your contracting terms have to be all in there. You have to have your contract writing system produce what it is that's correct. But at some level, all of that can make you lose sight of what am I actually doing here? Exactly. We want the folks to be adding value through their critical thinking, not just checking the boxes, this clause, that clause. We want to train them to follow the rules so they know the rules, but that's not how you train someone to play baseball. You don't hand them the rule book and say, now that person knows how to play baseball because I memorized the rule book. You want to get them actually working and thinking. That's the process. I know I know we have computers working on some of those processes. Humans are going to be in the loop always. Yes, they sure will. We're speaking with Dustin Pitch. He is the future workforce capabilities lead for the Army Contracting Enterprise. Now, you call this a game. 
Tell us how it works. It's not just a set of Q&A, yes or no questions. When we started the project, it's how do we get it to be something more than just a quiz? So we created some characters. There, it's not Fortnite. It's not a shooter game, though you may have heard about some of the, right. the, the, the shooter games that some folks had that have kind of a quiz built into it. We, we have questions throughout, but we've got actual lookalike documents that someone would have that's we have a requirement for you to buy some weapons. And then the person goes through those documents and just like they would. And then they interact. Sometimes you have to send them back to the office that created them to have them make some corrections or changes or clarifications. So it's kind of simulating those interactions with some knowledge checks along the way, as well as we utilize some references to some of our other reference materials that we want our folks to use. We send them directly to those sites to actually utilize the tools they would be using when they're doing that by as well. If you need a template for putting out a solicitation, we can reference you directly to where you can find the templates for that type of solicitation. So this game needs constant attention in terms of making sure that what it invokes is the latest. Well, you know, when you're dealing in uh, regulations, policies, which is our office, it's an always ever-changing environment. So absolutely, there'll be tweaks here and there. We count on our field. We have a very astute field at at calling out corrections and changes in um, requirements and policy. So it's never going to be something you can just let go. That's the realm we're in. No set and forget. And just, if you would, just give us a sense of the scope of the Army contracting enterprise. Because you do deal, I mean, the Army deals with DLA and other sources of supply. So what what are your boundaries for what is overseen by the Army uh, contracting enterprise? Well, so when we say Army contracting enterprise, we're talking about 8,000 to 9,000 individuals, primarily 1102 contract specialist, contracting officer. There are about 6,600 of those all across the world from our major commands. So what do they buy? What's the scope of what they buy? We'll say from our mission statement, we're, we're the enablers for the Army mission. They'll buy anything that, forget all the lines that we wear, shoot, drive, launch, eat, consume, buy everything. Dustin Pitch is the future workforce capabilities lead for the Army Contracting Enterprise. I spoke with him at a recent National Contract Management Association meeting. Find a video of this and other interviews from the conference at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, one small agency marks success in modernizing an old process. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It sounds cliche to say someone has devoted a career to helping others, but my next guest has literally done that, specifically helping victims of terrorism and crime. Among her accomplishments is drafting the original policy for the International Terrorism Victim Expense Reimbursement Program out of the Justice Department. Today, she's Deputy Director of the Office on Trafficking in Persons, part of the Health and Human Services Department. And she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. Carolyn Hightower joins me now. Ms. Hightower, good to have you on. Good to be with you, Tom. Thank you. And it sounds like you have had, indeed, an interesting career. Just give us the uh, 60-second outline of what you've done in 40 years of federal service. Wow, that's quite a challenge. 
Well, I came into federal service as a presidential management fellow. At that time, the program was the PMI program, Presidential Management Internship Program. I had the great opportunity to join the Department of Justice in a brand new office, the Office for Victims of Crime, which was established after the passage of the Victims of Crime Act of 1984. And I spent 23 years there basically working on developing programs and services for individuals who experience probably the worst incident of their lives, working with programs that assist victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, and those were the priority areas outlined in the Victims of Crime Act. But after the Oklahoma City bombing, Congress basically passed legislation to support the response to cases of terrorism. And as a result, our office had that responsibility added in addition to focusing on domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. Sure. And we should just remind people that might be a little bit newer to the market that that Alfred P. Murrah building bombing in Oklahoma City was 1995 during the Clinton administration. And until 9-11, it was the biggest domestic terrorism occurrence ever, correct? Absolutely. And it was the first time the federal government had to basically amass a coordinated response to a mass terrorism case. Uh, There were 169 individuals that perished in that bombing, and it was a monumental effort to try to pull together all the resources. I think the greatest challenge was the fact that the bombing occurred in Oklahoma City, but the trial was actually held in Denver, Colorado. So it was coordination between two different jurisdictions and two different sets of nonprofit organizations, as well as government entities involving both the federal and the state government. And how did the work that you had done for victims of, for lack of a better word, ordinary crime, inform what you were then doing for the addition of this whole terrorism piece to it? I think the most important aspect of that was the fact that we had built a network of service providers across the United States, including in Oklahoma and in Colorado, that we were able to draw upon their support in implementing services and assistance for the surviving family members who wanted to attend the trial, and then also for the community who had been affected by the bombing. And by the way, you have been to the bombing site, which is now mostly a memorial because the building was not salvageable in Oklahoma City. And tell us about that. That was a really moving experience. I had not been there since the 1990s. And about two years ago, I was driving across country to take my daughter to college. And I wanted to stop there and I wanted her to see the site and to explain to her what happened. And it brought back a lot of bad memories as well as a lot of very good memories about the good people of Oklahoma and the people of Colorado who stepped up at a time when we really needed them and their support and needed them to trust the government and to work closely with the federal government to provide the support and assistance to the family members and to the survivors of the bombing. We're speaking with Carolyn Hightower. She's deputy director of the HHS Office on Trafficking in Persons and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. So tell us then how you got to the HHS post and what your work there involves. 
Sure. Well, I took a brief hiatus from the federal government and I lived abroad in Chile, Colombia, and Mexico. And when I returned from living abroad, I was ready to return to federal service. And I happened to learn about this brand new office that the Department of Health and Human Services had established, the Office on Trafficking in Persons. Right before I left the Department of Justice in 2007, Shortly before then, I guess seven years before then, Congress had passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, and my former office at the Office for Victims of Crime had assumed some responsibility for implementing programs and services for individuals who experience trafficking. So I saw this new opportunity at HHS and reached out to them and was selected to serve as the deputy director here. And the nice thing about it was in both of my federal career cases, I joined brand new offices and it was a great experience because it was an opportunity to build an office from the ground and what was I think most beneficial to me in coming to HHS was the experience that I had had at the Department of Justice and the development of that program office and the services and assistance that we were able to put into place, as well as the policies that we were able to establish in terms of how we wanted to build a community of services for individuals who experienced victimization. And going back to those justice days, those 23 years, you had a lot of attorneys general come and go in that period of time. And justice is kind of an operative agency. They investigate, they prosecute, they go fight crime. Did you feel that you always had the support you needed for something that's maybe the softer end, for lack of a better word again, at justice, which is helping the victims that are kind of in the rearview mirror in many cases for what justice actually does? Well, you know, when the Victims of Crime Act was first passed and the Office for Victims of Crime was established, I think that there were lots of questions about why this office would be at the Department of Justice and why it was not a social services agency. But the focus was really on how we provide access to the justice system for individuals who had experienced a crime victimization. And so we were able to parlay that focus with the social services and basically garner support for our programs because prosecutors and law enforcement realized that if victims had the assistance that they needed, they were more willing to cooperate with law enforcement and participate in a criminal justice proceeding. And then it also relieved them of some of the, I guess some would call the social services side of responding to crime. All right. So you have spent a long time then helping victims of crime. What's your feeling about what people may not understand about someone who has been a victim of crime? It affects them more than just the physical harm they may have, do you feel, or or maybe just the monetary harm they might have experienced? Well, I, I think it's a combination of multiple things. There is the physical aspects of it, but there is also the psychological aspects of it and the financial aspects. And one of the things that I think that has evolved over time is a greater appreciation that all of those are necessary components of an effective response to victimization. There are state crime victim compensation programs in every state. When I first joined the Justice Department, there were only like 44, I believe, in place. But now every state has one. After the 9-11 bombing, you remember that Ken Feinberg, they set up the compensation fund for the surviving family members of that bombing. So I think that there is a greater appreciation for 
the opportunity for collaboration among various entities across the government. You asked me about support. I do want to say that throughout my career at the Justice Department, I found that the leadership of the agency was totally committed to an appropriate response to crime victimization and really took on you know, some of the naysayers and some of the individuals who were not so keen on the idea of like, why are we doing this kind of social services activity? Now, I think it's just seen as a part of the fabric of the organization. All right. Well, that's testimony, I think, in part to the work you've done. And I guess sounds like you would hope your daughter would follow you into public service. Well, interesting I, uh, enough, I have two daughters. Uh, one just graduated from James Madison University with a dual degree in international affairs and Spanish. But interestingly, she received a fellowship, a presidential fellowship, and it was all focused on human services. So now her focus is she wants to go to graduate school and get a public health degree. And I said, well, wait a minute. I thought you started off as in this international affairs. She said, but I think I really like this work a lot more. She was working with refugees and immigrants down in the Harrisonburg area and helping them with English language and also helping to support them in their educational pursuits. So, yeah, I think I, I have at least one that's heading in that direction. My other daughter is a rising senior at Stanford, and she's studying biology and archaeology. I'm not quite sure what she plans to do with that degree right now. She's working for the National Park Service in Yellowstone National Park doing archaeology work and spent six weeks in Bosnia doing archaeology work uh, in a medieval cemetery. So, yeah, I think that I may have had an impact on them as well. Sounds like you're very proud of both of them justifiably. Carolyn Hightower is Deputy Director of the HHS Office of Trafficking in Persons and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure for me to join you. And I just want to say that, you know, public service is a high calling and nothing gets done in the government, in any government without a team. And while I'm being recognized, there are so many people who also contributed to this response. And I feel a little bit uncomfortable being the the center of, of this attention because I didn't do anything alone. It was the work of not only my colleagues within the federal government and the leadership of the federal government, but also with the private nonprofit organizations in the community and the state and locals. And I, I think that it's important to recognize that civil servants come in every day and they do exactly what I do. I just happen to be being recognized, but there are so many other people who are worthy of recognition and so thank you for this opportunity to just speak on their behalf because they are the backbone of how we get things done uh, across the, the government. And so noted. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Department of Homeland Security leaders are ringing the alarm bell about an expired chemical security program. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency lost its authority to regulate high-risk chemical facilities late last month. Leaders are urging the Senate to pass a reauthorization bill when it returns from August recess. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. 
people forget that infrastructure word on CISA's title, I think, sometimes. So what is the latest on this program? What's expired? And any effects so far? Yeah, I was going to point that out as well. This is about infrastructure security. The authorization for the Chemical Facility Anti-Terrorism Standards, or CFATS program, as it's called, expired on July 28th. Uh, That's after the Senate failed to pass a reauthorization bill before going on recess. It's the first time the program hasn't been reauthorized since it was created in 2007. It allows DHS and CISA to regulate the security and conduct inspections of more than 3,200 high-risk chemical facilities across the country. CISA is holding its annual chemical security summit this week. And of course, this lapse in authority has really been the focus of the summit this year. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas appeared and implored the Senate to reauthorize CFATS as soon as it gets back in session. CISA Director Jen Easterly talked about the program, calling it a shining example of smart regulation that has the buy-in of industry. We're talking about things like inadequate security controls, inability to detect intruders, insufficient access controls, inadequate security training. We're talking about insufficient cybersecurity patching and vulnerability screening, vulnerability scanning, um, missing information in background investigations. I mean, these are actual vulnerabilities that have been identified by our inspectors working hand in hand with these high-risk chemical facilities And these are vulnerabilities that have been mitigated because of the program. So the question is, why did that program not get reauthorized? Did it just simply get ground up in the general lethargy that is Congress these days or logjam, I should say? Well, actually, you know, the House of Representatives passed CFAT's reauthorization earlier this year, a 409 to 1 vote. The Senate was moving to vote on reauthorization in late July before they went on recess. But Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Ranking Member Rand Paul blocked a fast-track vote on the bill. He argued in a floor vote, a floor speech rather that these regulations favor big industry while serving as a barrier for small businesses, and they should have a hearing on the bill before they move to actually reauthorize this program. Paul's office, when I reached out, did not you know, say whether he sees a path forward for when they get back from recess. They just pointed me to his floor speech. So it will be interesting to see whether his GAC moves to mark up a bill quickly when the Senate gets back next week. Yeah. So what could happen long term if this authority doesn't come back and Senator Paul simply sits on it? Well, so far, there have been some uh, effects in terms of, uh, you know, referring people who want to access chemicals at these facilities to the terrorism watch list. That's something that CISA typically does under this program. It has not been able to do that. Uh, CISA says it gets about 300 names a day in terms of accessing those chemicals. So it's up to over 9,000 names that it hasn't been able to check notionally based on that rate. Long term, uh, they could be looking at some workforce effects. CISA has, of course, these chemical facility inspectors, sector risk management analysts, cybersecurity, analysts working on this program. Kelly Murray, Associate Director of CISA Chemical Security, says her staff is working on some voluntary security programs during this lapse in authorization. But if this continues over the next month, she's worried that they could start losing staff. If we have the same level of appropriations, but no authorization, or if our appropriations did go down, uh, I do have significant concerns that 
we will lose team members during this uncertainty as this lapse continues and certainly if it continues past the fiscal year. And what about the cybersecurity side? I guess that's operational technology, which CISA is also concerned with. That's right. This has been an emerging focus under CISA and the chemical security program. It really falls under this larger push to improve cybersecurity across all critical infrastructure sectors. Last fall, uh, the White House and CISA launched what it called a 100-day cyber sprint with the chemical sector. That involved the nation's leading chemical companies and CISA agreeing to a plan to promote a higher standards of cybersecurity across the sector. There was a focus, as you pointed out, on industrial control system cybersecurity across these facilities, more information sharing and analytical coordination between the government and the chemical sector. That's a lot of voluntary activity. But since CFATS provides a regulation, uh, Murray actually says CISA has been working on a proposed rulemaking to update the CFATS program and include cybersecurity performance standards for the chemical sector. But that's something that's also now on hold since this this authorization has lapsed. Well, will Congress say to Senator Paul buzz off and go ahead and reauthorize this? What's the outlook? I guess one chamber comes back next week and the other chamber comes back the week after. Yeah, we'll have to see what the Senate actually does here, whether uh, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee uh, Chairman Gary Peters agrees to hold a hearing, how they work that out with Senator Paul. Um, You know, Murray says DHS and CISA legislative affairs teams are working with Congress to come up with a a solution, working, I assume, with Senator Paul's office to come up with a solution here. Congress doesn't have a lot of time before the end of the fiscal year, as uh, Murray pointed out, before some of these long-term ramifications happen. They have to work out a spending agreement or pass a stopgap spending bill before the end of the year. Eric Beyer is president and chief executive of the National Association of Chemical Distributors. He's a former Hill staffer. He talked about some of the uncertainty here over the next few weeks. What we don't want to see happen is get to September 30th. You all know the drama that's already starting to ramp up in the media when it comes to continuing resolutions and government shutdowns. We clearly don't want to get there. We don't want to have our bill or any other bills that could or could not be included in there being, you know, ramrodded through or not through. We want to get a nice clean vote if we can because the CR process is a messy one and there's a lot of very strong opinions on both sides of keeping the government open versus not. We don't want to go down that path. Yeah, I would only disagree with him in one point. It's not the media making this up. The uh, the uncertainty and the drama is on the Hill itself, and we're just reporting on it. So then this is just one of a lot of things that's on the plate. Yeah, that's right. It's certainly a smaller issue if you're talking about general congressional issues over these next few weeks. But as uh, folks are saying here, it's, it's a pretty important one for uh, chemical security across the nation. Yeah. And if there is a lapse in appropriations, so-called government shutdown, it is those people in the policy and rulemaking areas of CISA that would not be able to go to work. And so that could yeah, further push this down, you know, away. That's right. You know, the, the analysts and things like that, that might not be considered, uh, you know, critical in terms of operations. All right. Never a dull end of the summer around here. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.